First of all, good luck. It's very, it's very wonderful to be here. I've heard about this this minion here in Bethesda for many, many, many years. Uh, closer to, I'm closer to the Rebrandris. And already, so I'm aware of the minion going back to his days. And then Rabbi Rosenbaum, and then Rabbi Singer. Rabbi Sussman. So, so I seem to connect it to at least, I don't know how far back it goes before Rabbi Brandris thinking he started it, right? If I call correctly. Say so again? Rabbi Brandris. No, he was, it was already 10 years old when he came in. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he was the first rabbi. He was the first rabbi. Okay, so there I go. Um, it's, so it's wonderful to be here. Number two, I'm very close with every singer, Baruch Hashem. We've had many, many wonderful conversations together. And whatever Tracy says about me, I want you to point out that you're, you're dealing with, with a premier Tamachachim. And um, I'm very impressed with it. I actually happen to know his parents very well, also, <laughs> who are here. You don't hold that against him. Actually, I think it enhances that. So the topic is, of course, this very exciting topic about death. I did it somewhere other. It's like, how do you how do you make that exciting, right? How do you draw people out for that? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. How do you do that? Um, and there's all these jokes you can make about it, but I'm not going to go there. Let's let's let's. So we did that already. Um, I want to share with you a, a fascinating insight which I saw many years ago, and I, I, it took me many years to absorb what he's saying. And I'm going to give you. I'm going to share with you what I think he's trying to say. Um, so if it comes out beautiful, it's his. If it doesn't, that is my fault. So. There's a wonderful sefer. The name of the sefer is called Ale Shur. So this work is written by a person named Rabbi Volvo, Allah Shalom. And he lived in Eretz He was a man with tremendous insights. He was, a, he was the mashkiach's mashkiach. He was the person who that you would have in each yeshiva, you would have an individual called a mashkiach, which meant he was the person, the dean of, the dean of men. He knew, his, he knew his students. He knew what they needed. And he was there for them. He was the person that they, all of them would go to. When they had a question, this is the person they would go to, is Rabbi Volvo. Rabbi Volva put out a, a work anonymously, actually, in the 60s. Uh, went through many revisions afterwards. The name of the sefer is called Ali Shur. And this Ali Shur, he, he, sec- he divides his work into four sections. He calls each one a shar. Each one is, is a gate. It's an introduction into some concept. The first one is the basic knowledge a person has to know. He wants to develop himself and becoming involved in, in, in his awareness of why a person is here in this world. The one is goals in life. <coughs> Second section is a little more intense, a little, little deeper. Third section is, okay, now you've really developed the basic skills, let's, let's start getting to understand yourself, talk about a lot of introspection, understanding, etc. And the fourth section is, okay, now you're ready to go out. Let's start talking about the steps of moving outwards. And the first ch- chapter in that section deals with marriage and then being a parent. And then it talks about being a member of the community. And, sees, and then it talks about the whole world, etc. sees, keep expanding outwards, seeing yourself as part of this great vision, etc. And then he has a chapter called Death. <coughs> and he says that this is the final culmination of the process of moving outwards. That's how he, he starts the chapter. And I remember the first time I read it, I said, what is he saying? There's obviously something very deep here, something very important here, and I don't know what he's talking about. Right? Um, so that was, like, that was like the first time I read it. And I think I got it. I think I get it. And then let me, let me share with you what I think he's trying to say. And I think with, from that, it gives you a tremendous understanding of what life is about from this, this thought. A child is born, is very self-centered. Right? <coughs> Two-month-old, three-month-old, four-month-old. He's hungry. He's wet. Something. So he starts screaming. And that's three o'clock in the morning. You know, it's not nice to wake up your parents at three o'clock in the morning. He doesn't care, right? You know? That's not his focus. His focus in life is himself. 
as we move, as we get older, we start becoming aware that there's, you, have to, you have to share your toys with the children, right? Everything we, there's a book, I think it's called Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, right? Like, you know, the main, make sure that you sleep, sleep not sleep every day, make sure you eat well, share your toys, right, etc. That's it, that's life, right? There you go. Kindergarten. And then you move onwards. So a person is, the goal in life is to move from being this very self-centered individual to this individual which sees the world. And there's two ways to see the world. You see the world where you see it, and you interact with it, etc. Then, then there's the person who really gets it. He really is able to get into somebody else's position, under, situation, somebody else's mind, empathize with them, feel, it, feel with the person, and be there for them. And it takes a tremendous amount of, of wisdom. It takes, a, it takes a tremendous amount of not being self-centered. So Revolver writes in a different work, he once gave, he was working with a group of young men to expand their understanding of Gemilas Chesed, of Chesed, of, of, of loving kindness. He gave them an assignment. This is the first week of the, 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 this group. Go out there and for two weeks don't do anything. Just contemplate three times a day, meet somebody that you meet, what do you think their needs are? Three, time, three times a day for two weeks, you meet somebody you meet somebody, somebody new, it can be the postman, it can be whatever, start from, you, you see them, think about what their needs are. And he comes back after two weeks, and he has the conversation with the young men, and he's recording this, this, this experiment, and they come back, and they said, basically they found all these, these people involved, that most people you meet have very similar needs to themselves, maybe, you know, certain points, different, but in general, it's pretty much the same. So he was not very happy with that. Because <laughs> that's not true. What happened is they're basically seeing themselves. They're trying to be nice, so they project themselves onto other people. What would I need in that situation? And the problem is that most of us have this problem. You know, I, I meet somebody in a situation which is unique, and I've never experienced it. How do I relate to it? How do I get them? How do I understand them? What I've been through, I can relate to, and I can I can imagine what they're going through. Some which I've never been through. How can I relate to what their needs are? And so that's not tested if I can just project myself into somebody else. Because I'm not seeing the other person, I'm seeing myself. So wh- wh- where is that moment where a person gets the clarity to stop focusing on themselves? The goal of this, this section, this last section of this work, is to have the person expand. When you, when you get married, the point is not to interact with your wife, it's understand another human being whose background is different than you, and in many ways, they're different than you. You put them together constantly, 24, 7, 365, with this individual who's different than you. And the goal is to respect them to the point that th- their understanding and their vision and their vantage point is just as valid or maybe more valid than yours. To see where they're coming from. That's marriage. When you can master that, you can do it with your children because your children are quite different than you. And you're going to come in, well, no, 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 no. well one second, one second. You know, maybe he's right or you're wrong. <laughs> Maybe he's seeing it from a vantage point that you don't understand where he's coming from. If you'll see where he's coming from, you'll be able to validate them. You'll be able to give them the self-confidence. You'll be able to understand them, what their needs are. Okay, now you want to do it with your neighbor. You want to do it with the community. You want to do it with, at work. But there's always this problem because we tend to see the world from our, 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 little, our little space. There's one point in a person's life where that, that's guaranteed that that's not true anymore. That's the moment of death. For that, that, that person, at that moment, the person says, you know what, it's not about me. It's not about me. Clearly it's not about me. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving here. 
I'm not in control anymore. I have this. I, I, I have a group of young men that are engaged, and I, whenever, the, whenever I have a group of boys that are engaged, so I like to, like to speak to them about marriage. Not that I'm the biggest expert about marriage, but you can ask my wife. But, um, you know, um, <laughs> I just I tell you, when I was married about five years, I, I really I did something really, really not on target with my wife, and I really blew it, shall we say. And I went to my mentor, and I said, you know, like I'm married five years, I, I, I wish I would not be doing this type of things. She says to me, he says, Rebel, yo, I'm married 25 years and I still make mistakes. <laughs> so I said, Rebbe, does it make me feel better or worse? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so here I am, you know, I'm dealing with this young man, you know, I, I still, you know, like, you know, of course, like, you know, I'm busy talking to him. Somewhere. I said, why didn't you call me? I was busy teaching about Sholem Bayez to the young man. It doesn't work. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so here I am. So I'm talking with this young man. I said, one of the issues which you have that Revolva points out in a different work, which he wrote for Hassanin, for the engaged young man, he has one for, for Kalos also, is that the, the, the first real challenge to a young man in the world of Bitochen, we'll translate the word in a second, is getting married. What is Bitochen? Bitochen is understanding that we live, in a, we live in Hashem's arms, which means we're not in control. Somebody else is in control. You get into the bus, I get into a car, and I'm with somebody, and I'm getting, I get into the passenger seat. I'm only getting into that car if I trust the driver. That's called bitachon. I trust. Them. There's different types of trust. There's the, the passenger gets into the other seat and falls asleep, totally confident that the driver knows what they're doing. They're ready to go to sleep. There's a, there's a driver gets on the side and they ha- they're, 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 they're using their virtual brake. You know, <laughs> they have the virtual brake. Oh, oh, slow down, slow down. Now you're and talking then, about my words. <laughs> and then you're ready at any moment to grab the wheel just in case. You know, <laughs> I trust him. But, right? right. So I said, there's a, there's a strange thing which we have with these young. That I don't. It's not all men. You know, but like you know, I can't. You know, don't have, you know Mars and Venus, but men like to be the driver, not the passenger. Because they like control. I want to be in control. And it's much more comfortable to be in control when I'm driving. I'm in control. Right? Greyhound, this, like, this is the Greyhound, you know, I've been on the bus like, let's go tell the driver to take a different route. Like, yo, will you excuse me? It's, it's his job. No, just go to sleep. That's a control issue that we have, that, men, that some men have. Okay? Marriage is the first time when you have this individual you can't control. Basically, a young man's life until he gets married, he pretty much decides what he wants to do, what he doesn't want to do, etc. Also, you have this individual who doesn't bend to your will, right? And you have to learn to respect. And that's the first time you're learning this. The focus is not yourself. And that's what marriage does. And then your children are really good for that. I, I, I um, <laughs> singer was just giving us. I'll give you a story which I, which, which parallels the story he was just telling me. So I, it's, it's great. I, I talk to the, my my chassan and I tell him that humor is very important. Learn to laugh at yourself. Be comfortable laughing at yourself. So here I am. I take my my son. He's like five years old, and he would walk with me to shul every every Shabbos. And of course, he couldn't sit and dive all the time. You know, he had his little snack pack, and he had his book to read, and he had etc. But even so, like. And he had this habit. It happened a few times during Shemoneser, where the whole place is quiet. He would start like making noise, you know, doing something. 
So, like, you know, like, of course, and I, it really wasn't so loud, but as a parent right next to him, it's, it sounds like the sounds of the sledgehammer. Because, like, <laughs> you know, the whole place is, like, looking at him and staring at you. Uh, you know, like, it's just a little kid. Like, making, like nobody, nobody else notices but you. Right? <laughs> so I, I, I this Shabbos morning, next, next week, I said, you know, I have to speak to him about it. And on the way to Shul, I decided I'm going to explain to him that you can't do that during Shemones, right? And he's smart enough to know what Shemones is, etc. And I speak to him, and then we have this great conversation, and I will explain to him, after this five-year-old, right, that he shouldn't do this during Shmonesra. So of course, what happens at the during Shmonesra? He does it, right? That's exactly what happens, right? And I, and I, and I, you know, so my first emotion was like, you know, getting a little bit tense. And I think, you know, I just spoke to him. Like, and, and here he is, like, ignoring me. And, you know, you have all these different emotions, like, you know, it's a five-year-old kid, like, you, 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 you. And I said, you know, so I said to myself, you know what, Rangel, you know what? You know, I, I'm a run, I run this yeshiva, and I have, like, you know, tens and tens of you know, students that I, I give direction to, and they're supposed to listen to me, etc. I can't get my five-year-old kid to listen to me! Like, you know, like, you know, who do I think I am? And it was like, I, I just started giggling in the middle of Shonestra. I just lost it. Like, I, here I am, I think it was a great rabbi, you know. I can't get this five-year-old kid to listen to me. I just lost it. But, you know, and it released my attention. Like, I'm not upset anymore. It's, 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 it's funny. Who do I think I was? Right? It's pretty funny. Like, you know... But it gave me clarity, like, you know, this is it, okay? We're going to learn that he's individual, he has his own needs, his own way of doing things, he's his own man, and I have to respect that. We had this once, like, he's like, I don't know, five years old, four or five years old. My wife says, why won't you listen? I said, male ego. He said, five-year-old kid! I said, yeah, male ego, you know, this is the way it is, come on. This is the way they come. Okay, so, so that, and our neighbors for sure are like that. But we really have to start seeing the world through their eyes. We're going to be able to interact with them in a respectful way. And be able to understand what their needs are and be able to empathize when they have a challenge. And there's no greater moment of that movement from inside of yourself, out and out and outwards, than the day of death, which gives you that clarity. It's the day where you realize you're not in control. You're never in control of your life. Your whole lifetime really belongs to somebody else. It belongs to your creator. He decides when to give you life and when not to. So then if, if that's true and that's clear to us, so of course, why am I focusing on myself? Why am I not noticing the person next to me? Not just noticing them, but being aware, empathizing, understanding, respecting, getting into their mindset, seeing the world from their position. Why is it me? Why am I right? Like, you know, usually have these people tell you, listen, like, I get to sort of get it right. Everybody above me is like a little bit too much, a little, a little too little. You know, I get it right. Why? Who said? How do I know? There's such a clarity from that moment. There's a famous, there's a fascinating concept that the sages say that a the presence, divine presence, rests over an ill, a, a deathly ill person. So the question is, why does the divine presence come over a deathly ill person? So Rabbi Volba in his work on Chumash suggests because. When we live in a situation where we're dependent on somebody else, then we can recognize our Creator. And that's when the divine presence comes over there. That clarity that we're dependent on somebody else, somebody outside of ourselves, gives that clarity to see Hashem. Because otherwise, we focus on, we sort of get the world, where, what it's about, etc. The opposite of that is the Gemara. The Gemara says, uh, that's actually the, the speaker of Hashem Shudas, in Yeshiva, suggested this idea. The opposite of that is, it wasn't myself. Um, um, there's a Gemara the Gemara says in Sota that a, a person who's a Balgaiva a person who is this um, 
non-humble person, this person who's boastful, etc. Um, God says, we, he and I can't live in the same world. There's not enough room in here for the two of us. So what happens? You know, he let, God lets him live. He, he sort of steps away and says, you know what, fine, you do it. It's your, it's your life. You take over. I'm out of here. One of my rabbis once suggested that, that there's a story we have in the Kumash of Nodim Avil. They, they go into the Kaddish Kedoshim and they die. So what was their sin? What did they do wrong? So one explanation was that they, were, they had Gaifa. So God says, listen, I'm a nice guy. Now, I, I don't have room for the, t- the two of us, the, the person who has the Gaifa, the person who has this arrogance. And I, you know, I'll give you space. But there's one space where you walk into. Uh, so say, I'm not leaving here. You go to the Kaddish God says, listen, it's me or you. I'm staying. You're done. Right? And that's what happens. This Gaifa, the arrogance, the thing, I, we get it right. There's a leader, there's a motion on Aaron. Why did you ask them? Why did you decide to do it on yourself without speaking to them? But according to one opinion, they didn't even ask each other. They just trusted themselves totally. Total confidence, which is a good thing. But, you know, you have to balance it. And that was what we fault them with. And there's no day which doesn't give you that clarity. <coughs> but greater than that. And with one, other, one quick thought, a little bit different twist. Um, I once heard this out of tape, and then I also subsequently, subsequently saw it written, and it worked by a person, <coughs> by a Victor Miller. Rabbi Miller, uh, oh, there, there we go, Rabbi Miller. So Rabbi Miller has um, this thought, you read the Chumash, um, the, story, the, the, the first generations live very long. Now, I'm a procrastinator. Okay? I'm a procrastinator. My wife is not Baruch Hashem, but I am. Right? So, I, don't, I, just, I, I can't imagine the challenge to a procrastinator if you live to be 950 years old. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll get to it 300 years from now. Like, There's time. Don't worry, we'll get to it eventually. 350 years from now. Like, you know, can you imagine that challenge? <laughs> it says the value of something, there's nothing more valuable in the world than air. Do we appreciate air? The whole time a person appreciates and thinks about the fact is when he can't get it. He's underwater. He has his tank. He looks at the dial and says, three minutes left, and he has, he's five minutes from the surface. Then you appreciate air. When it becomes limited, you appreciate it. A person, water is the second most important thing. We don't really think about water so much. A person's in a desert, and there's no water available, and starts thinking about the lack of water. When it's not available, when it's limited, then you appreciate it. Supply and demand tells you that the more limited something is, the more value it have. That's not really true in life. That's true in economics. It's not true in life. Diamonds are not as valuable as air. There's nothing more valuable than air. But diamonds sell for a lot more than air does. But where do we learn to appreciate the value, the most valuable thing, which is not even air, it's life. It's when it's limited. If a person will live for 900 years, it's very hard to appreciate the value of every moment. How do you appreciate the value of every moment? You know what? It's, it's not so long. A person has you know, a limited amount of time here. He says, you know what? I've got to take advantage of the time that I have. I can't procrastinate. So it's the greatest appreciation of the most, gen- the most beautiful jewel that we have, which is life itself, requires that there has to be an end. So the Medrash says, God saw everything that he did and it was very good. So the Medrash says that Tov is life, Tov Ma'od, very good, is death. The most valuable thing that there is, 
in this world is life. But the only way we're going to appreciate it is from the prism of the fact that it ends at some point. So we left it with two thoughts. That we have, it gives us appreciation of life, but even more it gives appreciation of understanding that it's not about us. And that there's somebody else who's in control. Be aware of him. Be aware of the people around us. Be aware of the world. And learn to empathize, to sympathize, to empathize, to understand, to respect. And that, that is the lesson which the moment of death gives to us for life. Thank you for listening.